It's really great to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm thinking about last week we celebrated Holy Week together and uh, we met on Good Friday for a joint gathering with some other communities and friends, including um, some of the communities we gathered with on Good Friday were Restore, uh, Journey, Peace Wilco, Austin New Church, and The Vine. And uh, we've got a few pictures from this joint Good Friday gathering. We came together uh, in this um, really neat building uh, near the Neil Cochran Museum downtown. We reflected on scripture and poetry and music and we prayed together, we shared a meal together, and several of us commented how comforting it was to be connected with this uh, larger network of churches and pastors that just reminded us how not alone in the city we are. It was just a really sweet time. And then Sunday was Easter, and that was also a touching time of celebration here at Vesper, and Christopher helped us contemplate this scene when Mary finds the tomb empty, and then Jesus meets her there in, in her sorrow. She's weeping, and he comes and connects with her in that authentic emotion. And in our text for today, we're going to consider how Jesus also comes and meets his other friends in their authentic experience immediately following his death. And we're going to notice that in this scene, Jesus starts talking with them about forgiveness, So the question we're engaging today is this, what is forgiveness really? And so perhaps as a way to begin, you might take a moment and think about a time when you have uh, asked someone for forgiveness or taken steps to forgive someone and uh, just begin to notice like in that interchange or that process, what were you really saying or doing and how would you phrase that, like in a word or a phrase. And so take a few moments and turn to someone next to you and ask them, what does forgiveness mean to you? And let's just uh, think this through together. So um, take a moment, turn to someone next to you, and then I'll bring us back together. All right, let's come back together and in a word or a phrase, what did you hear? Let's see if there's some common themes among us. Just a call out in a word or a phrase, and let's think this through together. What, what are some things that forgiveness means to us? What does forgiveness mean to you? Brave space. Not letting something fester. Thanks. Peace. Yeah. Reconciliation. Letting something go from the mind, heart, and body. Good. One more? I heard two things. Unconditional what? Just unconditional. And then over here? Understanding. Okay. I'm really glad we're having this conversation. And um, here's my confession. I don't really know what forgiveness means, practically speaking. (laughs) I, I don't know exactly how to tell when forgiveness is happening or when it's artificial or pseudo-forgiveness. I don't know 
exactly how to walk someone through a process of forgiveness and how to assess are they on step three or step eight or step 1,000. <laughs> Nevertheless, I write a lot about forgiveness and I have said a lot of things about forgiveness, bold things. And I understand forgiveness to be the heart of the Christian story and I am absolutely persuaded by it. I can understand a way in which everything that is sideways or upside down in our world and inside us and between us could be rewired and transformed through forgiveness. And maybe you're like me and you have spent years thinking about this question, the practicalities of forgiveness, and maybe you also have more questions like me. Questions like, is there such a thing as looking too hard at ourselves and our own personal need for forgiveness, taking too much responsibility so that we're not also holding others accountable? Is there such a thing as focusing overly much on an individual's needs for forgiveness so that we're not also critiquing systems of racism, sexism, poverty, trauma? Is it possible that the idea even of free will, which is sort of at the core of some of our conversations of forgiveness, is there a way in which free will is a luxury of the privileged? And therefore, teachings on forgiveness can be used as a tool to keep the oppressed distracted and preoccupied with their own self-improvement so that systems of abuse go unchecked. I don't, well, I was going to say I don't know, but I think I'm saying yes <laughs> to all those questions. But for that reason, I don't know exactly how to engage the practice of forgiveness and also acknowledge the ways that it can be used as a tool for exploitation. But I do know one thing. <laughs> to the degree that forgiveness is a practice of truth-telling, of feeling the intolerable and learning to speak the unspeakable, there is freedom in the practice of just engaging this question of what does forgiveness mean. And so that's the conversation I'm interested in us having today as we listen to the scene from John 20, which opens with this. When it was evening on that day, the morning the tomb was discovered empty, the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear. So let's pause here and just notice the first thing we might recognize in this scene is Jesus' friends are gathered in this locked room after a horrifying weekend of watching the violent torture and death of their friend, and now it's the following morning, and they're terrified that there may be more violence coming, and they're fearful. Violence makes us afraid, and I'm thinking about all forms of violence that we're engaging in our lives and in the world today. I'm thinking about child abuse and police brutality and racialized violence and school shootings. I'm thinking about the violence and abuse and oppression in religious communities that many of us have navigated and grown up in. And part of my own story of becoming a wife and a mother within Southern Baptist circles, which is it's a tender part of my story, Part of that story is the way in which the teachings in that tradition and in other evangelical circles like it made it a terrifying place to be a woman. So the, the past president 
um, of the Southern Baptist Convention, who was also the president of the school where I first started my training to become a counselor. He terrorized women for decades, and he taught a violent theology to the men who followed him. He taught men to discourage women from reporting rape, to sexualize young females and call it biblical. He preached that a woman who was being abused by her husband should just be patient and stay with him and pray that he would stop hitting her. And there's a well-publicized sermon one Sunday where he talked about a woman who had, he had counseled her and she came to church that Sunday with bruises and black eyes and she said, I hope you're happy. And because she was being submissive, he said, yes, ma'am, I am happy. And just notice with me, I know, and let's just breathe. I'm always just like, we'll just, I'll be in it together. But notice with me that in those circles, when a woman steps forward or speaks out or protests her own oppression or is defending somebody else, she's marked as rebellious or worse, undesirable. And she's often labeled using sexualized or racialized slurs. And therefore, when a woman steps forward, she is always risking some degree of humiliation. And I learned this when I was 19. I answered a pulpit call joyfully at Hyde Park Baptist Church, not far from here, off of Speedway. And I, I just didn't know this dynamic before this. And I walked down the aisle of the church in front of a couple thousand people and said I was giving my life to ministry, which I thought at the time meant going to seminary and learning to teach and preach. And the pastor received me and heard what I was saying and registered some shock and, and kind of pity. And he took both my hands in his and he said, perhaps instead you're being called to be a counselor. Notice with me, when a woman steps forward, she is risking criticism. I learned this when I was 28, and I was finishing my master's in counseling program, and I had gotten pregnant with Gracie, and I was, getting, I was preparing to apply for jobs after graduation, and a, another pastor pulled me aside and said, perhaps you better not be planning to work because dads are really not suited to stay home with young children. Notice with me, when a woman steps forward, she is risking punishment. I learned this several years ago. When I was raising alarms about an Enneagram teacher, Chris Hewards, and we had brought him to Vox, this was several years ago, to do a retreat for us, and we were thinking about doing more with him. And I was really worried something seemed unsafe about him. And another pastor, one who's not here at Vox, pulled me aside and said, perhaps you better not question other speakers if you want to continue being invited to speak. And for months, I felt afraid <laughs> that if I continued expressing concern about this speaker that I would be retaliated against. A short while later, it came out that Chris had actually been sexually and spiritually and psychologically abusing women, many women, many young women of color. And he was thankfully held accountable. 
And here at Vox, when we got that news, Waylon, who's an, uh, an ally, he and I collaborated on a letter to you all. And we acknowledged uh, that this news uh, was true, and we invited anyone in our community to share openly about your experiences with Chris, with this leader, or any other leaders or teachers that we had ever engaged here at Vox. Because our position here at Vox and our current pastors and staff and NAV are in consensus about this, that you can always, always, always tell us your experience without fear of punishment and be listened to. Because violence makes us afraid. So the doors of the house where Jesus' friends met were locked for fear. And then Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, peace. When I hear Jesus say this, I don't hear peace as in, like, don't be afraid. What I hear is, be at peace even though you have good reason to be afraid. Be at peace even though the powerful may be out to punish you. Be at peace and trust yourself. Trust what you have seen. Trust what you know. Trust your body. Trust your sense of right and wrong, even though you're terrified. And let's notice that last year, the Southern Baptist Convention did release a list of their leaders, which have been known to have sexually abused women and children. The list is 205 pages long. That's not 205 names. 205 pages of names. And that moment of reckoning would not have been possible without brave women and queer individuals stepping forward and without cis-hetero men allying with them. So friends, what helps us find the courage to do that? And what might be the relationship then between that truth-telling and the practice of forgiveness? Let's hold that question in mind now as we look at how this scene in John unfolds. We read, after he said this, Jesus showed them his hands and his side. When I read that, what I see is Jesus is inviting them to tell this story of what happened, to tell the story of the violence that they had just experienced and witnessed, because it's the scars, it's the impact that makes violence visible. So Jesus is inviting them to narrate the story again, to move from a place of fear to a place of honesty about what happened, the injury, and then possibly anger about it. And then he repeats, peace. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And to be clear, that means I'm sending you to go back to the people who caused these injuries and figure out how to respond to them. So perhaps a question for us then is, how are we to respond to those who harm us, who injure other vulnerable people? What does forgiveness look like really, practically? in times of violence. I don't know that I fully have the answer, but I know what forgiveness is not. It does not mean excusing harmful behavior or allowing it to continue or saying it's okay or automatically trusting again. 
So if forgiveness doesn't mean any of those things, what does it mean? John says, when Jesus has said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So there are two Greek words for forgiveness, and the one used here means this, to let go, fall, drop, release your hold on, cut loose. We heard some, some of that earlier. So we might understand Jesus' words here as this, if you cut loose the sins of any, they are loosed. And in contrast, if you cling to, fasten, clutch, grasp, hold tightly to the sins of others, they are held tight. And this makes sense to me when I think about how change occurs. So you've heard it said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Because when we hold tight to our wish for someone to be different than they really are right now, we may feel inclined to then try to teach them a lesson or force them to change through punishment or retaliation or harm for harm. Our efforts then to try to change someone into the person we wish they were does violence to them. But when we loosen our sense of who we wish that person was in the present moment, and we interact with them simply and exactly as they are right now, then we are also loosening up any need inside us to force them to change. And that is truly what I think nonviolence looks like. And I wonder if that's also some of what we're saying with this word forgiveness. What we're saying is, I forgive you for not being who I wish you were. And despite who you are right now, despite the harm you caused, I mean you no harm in return. So friends, how do we do that authentically? David Augsburger speaks about forgiving as for grieving, and I, I like this idea. I wonder what you think of this. Like grieving, lamenting, expressing our pain as fully as possible before we even think about moving towards forgiving. So he says if we don't allow ourselves enough time and space to grieve, he calls that denial. And he says it leads to pseudo-forgiveness, where we might still unconsciously do harm by trying to force someone to change. So instead, he proposes we engage all of what we're feeling, shock, numbing, anger, withdrawing, slowly beginning to tell the story and grieving. And then as we find support, we gain insight, our peace comes back online, and eventually we arrive at forgiveness where we can say genuinely, despite what you did, I mean you no harm. And we can be trusted to mean it. <laughs> he says, for grieving refuses the shortcut to resolution that's offered by forgetting, which is the primary mechanism of denial. He says, rather, it intentionally remembers and returns to the loss, relives the event, retells the story as often as necessary until peace has been made at a level that permits the opening of a different future. Maybe some of you are already rock stars at this grieving business, <laughs> but if you're like me, I've often found it so much more comfortable and easy to be present with someone else in their grief than to feel and speak my own. 
And Francis Weller, he calls white America in particular a grief illiterate culture. He says, imagine though the feeling of relief that might flood our whole being if we knew that when we were in the grip of sorrow or injury or harm, our village would respond to our need. And when I think about that, I notice that in grief, the thing that we might need the most may be the thing we want the least, <laughs> which is an audience. But friends, to forgive, we need to speak our grief out loud to God and to one another and to God embodied in one another. <laughs> we need to speak our grief to someone who is sitting with us, maybe crying with us, and saying, yes, yes, what you're saying makes sense. It's like the you're not crazy message. And also, hell no, that should have never happened to you. So if forgiving requires for grieving, and if grieving requires us to help one another, to feel the intolerable, to speak the unspeakable, where do we begin? I, there's still a lot that I don't know about this subject. But I know this. I'm paying attention to what Jesus does with his breath. So when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Because finding God in our breath reminds us we're never alone. If we're still breathing, then we can still speak. If we're still breathing, then there is still time and hope. So I'll leave us with this breath prayer. Thich Nhat Hanh is a monk. His lifelong efforts toward peace inspired Martin Luther King Jr. to nominate him for the Nobel Peace Prize. And Waylon once shared this breathing exercise with me during a time when I was needing help, moving through grief to forgiveness. And so I'll offer it to you now as a way to close our time together. So in whatever way feels good to you, maybe take a moment if closing your eyes is helpful or keeping your eyes open, but gently lowering your gaze and begin to place attention on your gentle in-breath, slowing down your out-breath. And he says this, Seeing anger's roots in my body, I breathe in. Seeing anger's roots in my consciousness, I breathe out. Seeing the angry person suffer, I breathe in. Feeling compassion for the angry person who suffers, I breathe out. Seeing myself burned by the fire of anger, I breathe in. Feeling compassion for myself, burning with anger, I breathe out. One more slow breath together. And let's notice how our breath connects us with our embodied self. And then our breath can turn into words. And then our words can change worlds. So Vox, may we continue to help one another to bravely grieve well. 
so that we might move in the direction toward forgiveness, genuine, authentic forgiveness, and be enabled to say to our oppressors, hell no, you should have never inflicted the harm you did. And also, we mean you no harm in return. May you come to know the peace which we are enjoying and experiencing and wish to extend to you as well. May it be ever so, in the name of God, the forgiver, Christ, the embodied one, and the spirit, our breath of life. Amen.